Good morning, Church. My name is Marion. Today's reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Now it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Must I clap or what? Yes. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, once again lovely, lovely to be with you all. And if you can turn with me to your Bibles, the passage that's been read to us, Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking at verse 5 to 18. We've been working our way through a series in the book of Hebrews. And we'll continue doing that for the next couple of weeks this morning, chapter 2 and from verse 5 to verse 18. Just before I pray, just one quick comment. It's a bit late in the day, but uh, someone asked whether we've had permits to work in my office at the church. Just so that you know, we do have permits for the media, for the online. We have permits for care and counseling services and also permits for uh, 
for the food uh, parcels and the food baskets. So thank you for thank you for all of those who have contributed to that, uh, so that we're able to serve and help those who are less advantaged than ourselves. Well, let's pray, and then we'll come to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, your word tells us that that the Bible is a light to our paths and a lamp to our feet. And Father, again we come this morning and we pray that you will dispel the shadows and the darkness, the shadows of discouragement or disbelief or doubt or sin, and you may shine your word into our lives. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2 and from verse 5 to verse 18. The key to our passage is actually in chapter 2 verse 1. So let me read that again. Royden looked at that last week. Chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So you remember when you were at school, the teacher would say to you, if you don't pay attention, you're not going to pass. Well, here the author of Hebrews says, if you don't pay attention, you're going to drift away. Now, the verb there, drift away, has the idea of a boat or canoe which is tied to the banks of, let's say, the Vaal River, and you and your family are standing there, and unbeknown to you, the rope has gone loose, and the canoe starts slowly drifting away, imperceptibly. And before you know, it's gone. So that's the warning here. Pay close attention so that you don't drift away. But of course, it's not just, it's not just an exam or a boat. In fact, in chapter three, the author says, don't, don't drift away. Pay attention so that you don't fall away from the living God. Imagine falling away from God. This is serious stuff. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about eternity. Now remember, he's writing, the the original author was writing, the original readers were Jewish Christians, uh, Jewish people who had come to know Christ, and they were tempted to go back to Judaism, back to the Old Testament laws, the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament sacrifices. And the author says, this is deadly serious. I want you to pay attention. Don't drift away from Christ. Don't fall away. Don't, Don't mess around with these things angels and ancestors and sacrifices and priests. It's not a game. Jesus is better. In fact, Jesus is in a totally different category, a totally different ballpark than all your man-made ideas. So here in chapter 2, 5 to 18, our passage this morning, he tells us three great things about Jesus because he's better and we shouldn't drift away from him. He tells us that Jesus is our perfect representative, Jesus is our perfect brother, and Jesus is our perfect rescuer. Let me just quickly go down two side roads before we get to that. Side road number one has to do about angels. The first thing to say is that Christianity is totally supernatural. In fact, you find it all over these these opening chapters of, of Hebrews. There's a real God, there's a real devil, there are real uh, angels, they are real evil spirits. There can be no pretense that Christianity is not supernatural. Now the question, are there real angels? We found them here in chapter 1 
And the question is, are they real? And the answer is, well, of course they are. You find angels throughout both the Old and New Testament. In fact, the Bible tells us that God created two kinds of personal beings, angels and human beings. Angels are intelligent, moral beings. Human beings, well, let's not go there. The angels, we are told, are spiritual beings created by God. Their home is in heaven. You find them all over the Bible, as I said. So in the Old Testament, you often read about the angel of the Lord. And you find them all over the New Testament. In fact, if you look at the Gospels and the life of Christ, you see angels speaking to Mary and Joseph before his birth. You see angels at the birth of Christ, angels at the temptation of Christ, angels at the resurrection of Christ, angels at the ascension of Christ. Angels are God's messengers who travel to earth and their particular function and duty is to protect God's children, God's people, us. So perhaps you've had an experience or you've heard an experience where someone has been uh, strangely, wonderfully, inexplicably protected. And the only way you can explain it is that there was some spiritual being. God was acting in some way or the other. Well, that may well have been an angel. Angels are real. They are spiritual creatures created by God. And their purpose is to protect uh, people like you and me. Now, let me just give a warning here that within the larger Christian church, there are certain Christians, certain groups who have an unhealthy interest in angels. So they may worship angels or pray to angels or seek angels. We are not to do that. We worship God. We worship Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We don't worship angels. So we need to be careful of that. There's some false teaching about angels. They are there. God has created them, and God has created them to protect us. And so we are thankful for that. In fact, the best book, I think, on angels was written by uh, Billy Graham um, 20, 30 years ago. And he wrote a book called Angels, God's Secret Agents. So if you want to know more about angels, well, there's a good place to go. Side road number two. What does it practically mean? Going back to chapter 2, verse 1, what does it practically mean to drift away? So let me try and explain that by giving you two examples. The first example is from the Gospels, from one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the sower and the seed. So you remember Jesus was the sower. And the seed is the word of God. And there were four kinds of soils. And you remember the third kind of soil. In fact, let me just say that that as a pastor, I find that parable hugely encouraging because it tells us Jesus the sower has 75% wastage. Remember that? Three of the soils, three of the seeds uh, didn't take. Only one of them took. So I'm encouraged by that. Because I see people come to church. They're here three months, six months, a year or two, and then they're gone. And it's not as if they found a better church um, or gone to another church. No, they've drifted. So it's encouraging to know that there will be wastage in gospel ministry. The third kind of seed or soil, you remember, the seed fell into the soil and it grew. So the roots took, the stalk growed, the leaves grew, and then it was choked. But it wasn't choked by opposition or persecution. It wasn't choked by some intellectual argument that that, uh, disproves the Christian faith. No, it was choked 
by the riches of life and the pleasures of life. So, so it's a real warning there, isn't it? That if you love the riches of life or the pleasures of life more than Jesus, well, that's you. You're going to be choked. The other, the other um, thing that choked the seed was the cares of the world. So we obvious, so we often don't, we don't uh, uh, recognize that. Uh, it's not so obvious where someone just gets so busy with life that they no longer have time to read God's word. They no longer have time to meet with God's people. They no longer have time to pray. Well, the cares of this world has choked them. Kate has a story where she tells of a, an old Christian friend. Um, and uh, he came to church here. He's no longer here. He used to be part of our church. And um, uh, she would encourage him to come to the midweek life group, which was close to where he lived. And uh, he would always make the excuse that he was so busy. He had a high-performing job. And uh, he was so busy, and she kept asking him, and he kept giving excuses. And one day she sat him down. Let's call him Michael. And she said, Michael, we're all busy. If you don't have time for God and his word and his people, you're too busy. You need to make up your mind. Well, thankfully, you know how Kate is. And uh, he made up his mind, and the next week he was there. Because we make time for what's important. So there's, there's one example of drifting away. Another example, I've been around long enough to, to have seen Christian churches, Christian organizations, and their life cycle. And uh, Christian organizations, Christian churches, like other organizations, have a life cycle, like a bell curve. And um, there's certain indicators that can tell you where they are in that cycle. And one of the key indicators is their commitment to Christ and the cross. So this is how it normally happens. It's a generalization, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty accurate. The first generation affirms Christ and the cross. They're passionate about Christ and the cross. The second generation assumes Christ and the cross. And the third generation denies Christ and the cross. Now, here's the point. It's easy to spot the first and the third. It's not so easy to spot the second. Because when you look in the churches or Christian organizations' official statements, their statement of faith, their official documents, there will be statements about Christ and the cross. But when you listen to their words and look at their actions, it's no longer primary. It's secondary. They're assuming Christ and the cross. And it's not long, my dear friends, when they start denying Christ and the cross. That's drifting. So perhaps, perhaps that's where you are today. I don't know your heart. Perhaps you think you're just coasting along, cruising along. You're not cruising along. You're either going forwards or backwards. Perhaps you're drifting away. So perhaps you need to pay attention to what God's word says to us today. Let's have a look. First principle. There we have the two side roads. Let's get on to the freeway. Principle number one. Jesus, our perfect representative. Notice verse five. Let me read from verse five to eight. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So remember, the original Jewish Christians reading this are tempted to go back to Moses, the Old Testament law, sacrifices, priesthood. And here in chapter 1 and 2, it's kind of strange to our modern ears, but they were tempted to go back to the worship of angels. It was big in those days. So how do we apply that? Well, I think some of us listening here this morning used to be involved in the worship of Mary or the worship of ancestors or perhaps the uh, worship of angels. Perhaps they were involved in the occult or spiritism and they tempted to go back. And the author is saying, don't go back. He's pointing us to Christ. Notice verse 6 to 8. He's actually quoting from Psalm 8, which is a creation psalm. It celebrates creation. And it asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him? Now, when I read that, I automatically think of Genesis chapter 1, that after God had created everything, after the five stages of creation, the five days of creation, the climax, the pinnacle was the creation of man. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. We were meant to rule and manage the world. We were meant to be God's managers. Our purpose for, for being created was to serve God, and we served God by managing God's world. The problem, of course, verse 8b, is that we made a right mess of it. Notice there, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So the idea here is of a corporate failure, all of us, a collective failure. Not just Adam and Eve, but all of us have messed up. Now that's painfully obvious, isn't it? With the virus in our world, the world is a mess. It's dysfunctional. We don't have control. We think we have control, but we don't have control. It's not just the virus which shows the brokenness of this world. It's our response to the virus which shows the brokenness of this world. Think of all the fighting, the arguing, the blaming, the conspiracy theories. What a mess. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? But there is one human who succeeds. Notice verse 8. We don't see man ruling effectively, but verse 9, we see Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Psalm verse 9 is fleshing out Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 isn't so much talking about us, it's talking about the perfect man, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus, who took on human form. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who humbled himself, who was made lower than the angels. Verse 9 speaks about the perfect humanity of Christ. And unlike ourselves, he didn't mess up. He was the perfect man. He perfectly represented us before God. My dear friend, you don't just sidle up into the presence of God. You don't just waltz into God's presence. It's like sidling up to the sun. You're going to be burnt, frazzled, toast. 
No, you need a representative. You need a representative like us, a human being. It's like that in the world of international politics. Our, our ambassador, the South African ambassador to France or or to Ghana has to be a South African citizen. You can't be a Congolese or a Mozambican or a Zimbabwean. We love you, Zimbabwe. In the same way, Jesus can't be our representative if he isn't human like us. So, verse 5 to 9 is a seamless picture. Look at it. Man is given authority over creation. Man messes up. We fail. Then we see Jesus, the perfect man, who succeeds where we fail. Verse 9, Jesus is not only, only a picture of the perfect man, but Jesus is the perfect substitute. He's the perfect sacrifice. He takes the punishment we deserve. He suffers death in our place. Notice the end of verse 9. He tastes death for us. So, so here's the equation again. We are sent to manage the world. The problem is we can't manage ourselves, let alone the world. God sends Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect representative, not only to, to, to create a new world, but to, but to take the death we deserve upon himself, to taste death for us. We all have a picture or a photo that we love, a picture that captures the essence of your family. So we have a photograph in one of the bedrooms, and... Um, that's the one which, which kind of captures, for me, the essence of the Morrisons. There's, there's Jean and me with our two very young daughters. Must be 25, 30 years ago. So there's Jean. She's young and beautiful. She's still young and beautiful. Uh, there's me, young and nerdish. I'm now old and nerdish. Then there's the youngest asleep in my arms. Fast asleep, fast asleep. I have this amazing gift to put people to sleep. And then the oldest is in Jean's arms, smiling. She was probably told to smile. Uh, but she's actually not looking at the camera. You know how it is with kids when you have a formal picture. They never actually look at the camera. Well, that's, that's the photo for me. That's the essence of, of our family. Imagine if you could ask God to give you a photograph that captures his essence. Imagine you could do that. What do you think it'll be? Would it be an old man like your grandfather or me sitting on a throne? Would it be Jesus, blonde, blue-eyed, with children around him or sheep around him? Would it just be blazing light, uh, bright blazing light from Genesis 1, the creation? But when you approach the throne, the throne, the frame, it contains none of those things. Instead, you see a barbaric execution. It's a shock. It sounds bizarre, but that's what the Christian message claims. That's the essence of God. Tasting death for everyone. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, Jews demand signs, Gentiles seek wisdom. But we preach Christ and him crucified. So let me say it again. The picture that best captures what God is, best captures the essence of God, is a man hanging on the most brutal instrument of torture and execution ever invented by man. Now, we're so used to seeing, seeing the cross in a church or hanging around someone's neck. But it's quite strange, isn't it? Would you have an electric chair or gallows hanging around your neck? 
or in front of the church. And yet that's the symbol at the heart of the Christian faith. That's the picture God has chosen to reveal himself. The essence of God is beyond bizarre. There's no other world religion that celebrates the death of its founder. But Christianity does. The question is why? Well, because of verse 9b. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let me try and illustrate that. I know I need a I need a book, so let me grab a book. Stage hands are not so good. <laughs> Proud, mature, we love you. All right, you've seen this picture, but some of you haven't. Let me try and illustrate the very guts, the heart of the Christian faith. Imagine this is me. Imagine the light up there is God. The problem is between me and me and God, there's my sin. Let's imagine this book is a record of all my sins. If it was, the book would have been much bigger. The problem is between me and God is my sin. Here is God, the light between us. There's no relationship. Why? Because God is a holy God. God is a just God. And I've sinned against him. And my sin comes between me and God. But God is not only a God of justice and holiness. God is a God of love. And so God sends his son, Jesus. This hand represents Jesus. And on the cross, God takes the sins, the garbage, the rubbish of people like you and me and places it upon Christ. And Christ takes the punishment. Christ takes death, eternal death, on my behalf. And then also what happens, there's another transfer, the perfection of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is placed upon me so that when God looks down at Martin Morrison, the sinner, he no longer sees my sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ. What a wonderful gospel for broken sinners like you and me. Jesus, our perfect representative. Quickly, number two, Jesus... Our perfect brother. Have a look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is superior to all other spiritual beings and angels, not only because he's the perfect representative, but because he's, he's our perfect brother. I mean, what an extraordinary thought. Verse 11, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's us. Some of our brothers have been a bit of a disappointment, but I won't mention any. But he is the perfect brother. He's the perfect older brother. He is always there for you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He would take a bullet for you. In actual fact, he has taken a bullet for you. It's kind of obvious that Jesus is our perfect brother. Notice verse 10. Verse 10. It's talking about us in bringing many sons, sons and daughters, to glory. If we are sons of God, well, then the Son of God, must be our brother. We are family. Again, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us his family. He's brothers and sisters. 
I can remember when I was growing up, we were three boys. I was the baby brother, the third one. My brothers were often ashamed of me. They often didn't want to acknowledge me. You know how it is with older brothers. They don't want to be seen with their younger brother, but not so with Jesus. He's not ashamed of me. Because of his death and resurrection of Christ, he has made me holy in God's sight. He has, he has made me acceptable in God's sight. He's made me forgiven in God's sight. When God looks down at Martin Morrison, the sinner, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He's not ashamed of me. In fact, he's proud of me. There, verse 12 and 13, he's quoting some of the Psalms in the Old Testament. The first quote is actually from Psalm 22. And he's confirming this fact that Jesus is our brother. Notice verse 12, taken from Psalm 22, which is actually a messianic psalm. You must have a look at it. There are numerous references made to the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. It's extraordinary, that psalm, Psalm 22. But verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, Jesus takes those words and he uses them for himself on the cross. And it's precisely because he was forsaken precisely that that he took a bullet for me that I can be called his brother, his sister. So I'm I'm wondering, when is Jesus proud of me? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, Perhaps it's when when I take on the family likeness, when I forgive someone, when I show sacrificial love, perhaps when I show the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But I think in the context of this passage, he's most proud of me when I admit my sin, when I admit my need, my brokenness, when I call on him for mercy, not the angels, Not some other mediator. No, I called on Jesus for mercy. A couple of years ago, a number of years ago, a lady in our church told me of a younger brother who'd gone off the rails badly for years. And there was alcohol, there was drugs, there was heroin, there was... And she said the greatest day for her was when he finally, she was talking, she said, the greatest day for me was when he finally off his own bat said, I need help. I need rehab. And she said, I was so proud of him. I think that's, that's the idea here. It's, it's when we finally come to Jesus and say, I need help. I need rehab. That he's really, really proud of us. Verse 10 wraps up this section perfectly. We told exactly how we become sons and daughters of God, exactly how Jesus becomes our older brother. Look at verse 10. You got it there? For it was fitting that he, meaning it was God's purpose, God's plan, in bringing many sons to glory. That's our sons and daughters to glory. That's where we're heading. And the basis of it, notice there the end of verse 10, the founder of their salvation was made perfect through suffering. That's how we become sons. That's how we get to glory. The word founder there can mean leader or champion or author, but probably the best word is pioneer. He pioneered our salvation. In his death and resurrection, he pioneered our death and resurrection. There's a tricky phrase there in verse 10, which says, should the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Now, it's not saying that Jesus wasn't perfect. It's not saying that Jesus needed suffering for his own salvation. No, the only way Jesus perfectly could perfectly be our brother, our representative, is if he shared in our mortality, shared in our humanity, and he shared in our mortality. That's when he would be our perfect representative, our perfect brother. Kazmir Zeglin. I'm sure the name doesn't ring a bell. He was an engineer born in Poland. He moved to, to the USA, moved to uh, Chicago, and he became a priest. But in his spare time, one of his hobbies uh, was still engineering. And uh, he was the inventor, 1901, of the bulletproof vest. You needed them in Chicago in those days. Perhaps you still need them. To prove the effectiveness of the vest, he put it on. And he asked a friend to shoot him with live bullets from eight paces. Well, they're all waiting. He survived. Not a single bullet pierced his skin. Perfect. Jesus, our perfect representative. Jesus, the perfect man. Jesus, our perfect brother. Question is, does it work? Does it do the job? Does it bring salvation from death? Well, Jesus comes to earth, beaten, scourged, crown of thorns, lacerated, broken back, bloodied back, arms outstretched, God forsaken. He tastes death on our behalf. And God looks down at this broken figure and says, perfect. The founder of our salvation takes our sin upon himself. He suffers and dies. And God says, perfect. And then raises him from the dead to glory and honor. And that perfect, sinless human representative is your brother. <laughs> I mean, that's ex- I mean, <laughs> that's extraordinary. He's your brother. I mean, you couldn't make this up. Third principle. We're getting there. Jesus, our perfect representative. Jesus, our perfect brother. Thirdly, Jesus, our perfect rescuer. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, you remember from last week, Royden told us that death is the great enemy, makes a mockery of all our striving. And it's been like that since the devil deceived Adam and Eve, our foreparents. Despite what people believe or say, our real problem is not physical death or biological death. No, our real problem is theological death. It's not the first death, it's the second death, meaning the judgment of God, the wrath of God, separation from God, and all his gifts. You've heard people say, I don't mind going to hell because my friends will be there. Well, your friends may well be there, but there won't be friendship. There won't be love. There won't be laughter. There won't be fun because those are God's gifts and they won't be there. Every day, everybody, some in one way or the other has a fear of death if they're honest. We all know we're going to die. Outside of Christ, it's a lifelong slavery because it will haunt you. Because in the end, death wins. So what's the point? 
Ninety-year-old novelist Somerset Maugham, in his memoirs, somewhat arrogantly said, I quote, I am content to be assured that with my last breath my soul will quietly and painlessly dissolve into nothingness. Well, that was not to be. When he was 91 years old, his nephew Robin, who was a Christian, Robin Moore, came to visit him. He lived in luxury on the Riviera with 11 servants, with a butler and a chef and a footman and gold-plated cutlery and and, uh, crockery. But it meant nothing. And Robin writes an article some years later in, in the London Times, and he says, I quote, he says, The following afternoon I found Willie, that's the old man, reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. His face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening, in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung himself down onto the sofa. Oh, Robin, he said, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head head in his hands. Willie looked up and he tightly gripped my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear and he was trembling violently. Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek. Go away, he cried. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. His terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around, but the room was empty as before. End of quote. The fear of death, my dear friends, is real and it's universal. Our lives are like reading a mystery murder novel, and at the end you discover that you are the victim. The great news, the amazing news, is that Jesus is our rescuer. He rescues us from the power of death. He rescues us from the slavery of death. He rescues us from the fear of death. He didn't come to rescue the angels or the demons. No, he came to rescue us, the offspring of Abraham. We are offspring of Abraham if we believe in Jesus. And he did it quickly, notice, in three decisive steps. They're all here in verse 14 to 18. Step number one, verse 14, he became flesh and blood like us. Verse 17, notice there, he was just like us, his brothers and sisters, in every respect. Here's our perfect human representative. If Jesus was to walk through the door there, he just looked like one of us. He's our perfect representative. Step two, he became our high priest. Notice the end of verse 17. In the Old Testament, the high priest was a mediator between God and man. And Jesus was a perfect mediator because he was fully man and fully God. So he represented us to God perfectly because he was a perfect man. And he represented God to us perfectly because he was a perfect God. Perfectly God. Step 3, verse 17, he became our sacrifice to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a wonderful, wonderful Bible word. We don't generally use it in normal English. It's a wonderful Bible word. It means to set aside the wrath of God. 
Because of our sin, we've aroused the wrath of God. We've become enemies of God. But Christ, who was without sin, in love, offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. He drinks the full cup of wrath that we deserve. And by so doing, he does propitiation for our sins. He sets aside the wrath of God by his death upon the cross. How extraordinary. He he drank a cup of wrath without mercy so that we could drink a cup of mercy without wrath. And he said, it is finished. He drank the last drop. It's finished. If you've trusted in this Jesus, you will never, 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 ever know the wrath of God because Jesus drank the last drop. Let me close. Our entire world is terrified of this virus. Half the world has been in lockdown for weeks, for months. What's our greatest need? Our world will say a vaccine for this virus. Hebrews tells us we have a much greater need. Much, much greater. We need a vaccine for the second death. Not the first death, the second death. We need an antidote for eternal death. Death will come to all of us, my dear friends. The death rate on this church at home, if you are watching, you may not know this, the death rate on our church at home channel is 100%. So if you don't like that, you better find another channel. No one gets out of here alive. The only vaccine, the only antidote to the second death is Christ and the cross. And the only alternative is to face the wrath of God eternally one or the other. There's no middle ground. So the great question this morning is what's it going to be for you? It's your call. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You can tell God where you are. I hope your prayer will make God proud when you say, Oh Lord, I need help. I need rehab. Will you rescue me? When you call out to him just in those simple, simple words, he hears and he answers. So will you say it again, Oh Lord, I need help. I need rehab. And Father, we thank you that when we call upon you with all our brokenness, all our sin, all our disbelief, all our doubts, and we call upon you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. Work amongst us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Two things. First of all, if you'd like to contact me, if you've got questions about what I've been talking about this morning, perhaps you're a Christian, you have questions about the passage, or perhaps you're not yet a Christian, or you're not sure that you're a Christian and you have some questions, why don't you email me? 
My email will, will appear on the screen, martinm at christchurchmidrand.co.za. You email me your questions, and um, I'll uh, try and answer them. So why don't you do that? If you have any questions about the passage, if you have any questions about where you stand with God, or the things I've talked about, uh, please, please feel free just to email me. Next week, I hope you'll be with us, God willing. We're having a look at Hebrews. I'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, where Jesus is greater than Moses. So please read that before next week. I hope you have a good week, and God bless you. Amen.